that is some weird, wild stuff. That is funny. I did not know that would be so funny. <laughs> yes! <laughs> GIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. TGIF, everybody. I'm Gary Mans. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour and going back in our memories to the days when people used to say, I don't go to sleep until after Carson. <laughs> I used to watch that, not religiously, but often enough. Oh, the greats he had, and of course, the greatest late-night talk show host of all time, Johnny Carson. That's a pretty, maybe not a universal opinion. Letterman has his partisans to this day, but for me, Johnny Carson defined the art of that particular form of broadcasting. Another guy who defines the art would be bad boy Benny Mathers at the board, production style. How you doing, senor? Wow, you put me in the uh, collection with Johnny Carson. With Johnny Carson. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I'm really speechless. That's some honor for sure. I don't play, one one of the memories I have of Johnny Carson is my parents would watch that after I went to bed because I was a tiny little tot. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I'd hear this laughing coming oh, yeah. from their bedroom. It would wake <laughs> me up, and I'd crawl in bed and get between the two of them. Of course you would. Un- <laughs> until I fell back asleep. <laughs> anyway, before we go to our honored guest of the hour, Garnet Schulhauser, always happy to have Garnet with us. I do want to say that this was in a Life magazine article. I mean, you talk about, ouch, Johnny Carson used to play Vegas. Seemed to be it was at least once a year. I mean, he was well known as a marquee player on the Vegas Strip. And during one of his late night shows, live shows, that it might have been Caesar's Palace, there was he was taking some questions from the crowd. And one guy stood up to complain, when are you going to stop keeping my wife from staying up too late? I want to be with her in bed and instead she's watching you. And unruffled Johnny Carson said, That'll happen when you put on a better show than me. (laughs) Touche, good sir, (laughs) touche. Don't mess with the Carson, the the great Carsoni. Unbelievable. Didn't expect to be talking so much about Johnny Carson. I hope he's out there in the ether having a good time and maybe listening in. Who knows? Garnet Schulhauser, he now becomes our focus. This gentleman is a retired lawyer who lives near Victoria on Canada's beautiful Vancouver Island with his wife, Kathy, and their little dog, too, Abby. After practicing corporate law for over 30 years in Calgary with two blue-chip law firms, he retired in 2008, and his first book, Dancing on a Stamp, was published in 2012. Since the release of his first book, Garnet has been active with book signing tours and speaking engagements and has been interviewed on over 150 radio talk show broadcasts from studios as far flung as the U.S., of course, Canada, of course, the United Kingdom, Ireland, and even Australia. So what is this? uh, Visit number eight, Suzanne? Yes, it is. For the eighth time, we are pleased to say welcome Garnet Schulhauser to Manson Mitchell. Hi, everyone, and thank you for having me again. I wanted to ask you, Garnet, as by way of just easing into an interview, another hour with you, and this is metaphysical Q&A. Anything goes, pretty much. Anything that the uh, FCC will allow, right? But I wanted <laughs> to ask you, Garnet, in, once again, give us a recap, but also in a way, an update is what we're looking for. You and Albert, these influences 
that come, as far as I'm concerned, from the greater forces of life, the life that we can't necessarily see, but we feel the effects, we feel the influence. How's it going with Albert? Have you heard from him lately? Can you update us all? Our listeners are eager to know what insights you have to share that you might not have had to share the last time you visited. Yeah, I still have contact with Albert. He's, he's, he's always there, sometimes more frequently than others. Um, uh, my last series of adventures with him are detailed in my upcoming book, um, Dancing with Angels in Heaven, which is actually available now on ebook, but it won't be available in the printed version until September. So it's in the process of being published. And so there's some very interesting things. Um, you know, with Albert, uh, he takes me on these astral trips to, to different places to meet different people. And with him as my tour guide, there's never a dull moment. It's always very exciting. I am certainly prepared to believe that. And when we have, just so people get a, a fuller sense of the capacity that you have developed, Garnet, to be in touch with these greater forces of life, that's my phrase for it, are all of these contacts of yours, with you being the contactee, are they all sprung from the human plane of existence or do they come from points unknown to most of us? At both. Um, and most of my trips to the spirit side, Albert usually lines me up to interview somebody who lived on earth for a period of time, usually famous people. Um, so I, I get contact with those people, have conversations. Uh, he also takes me to other planets in the galaxy where I meet different uh, ETs, different life forms, most of them very intelligent. Sometimes he takes me to other human civilizations on different planets that have a much different perspective. And in the last few trips, he's taken me to view Earth in a parallel universe, which has some very interesting twists to it, which in a lot of ways make it much better than our, than our universe in this particular dimension. So uh, uh, it's all over the map. It's, it's, and, and he never tells me beforehand where I'm going or why. He just takes me and I just go with the flow. And then he, when, I'm when I'm finished with the trip, he says, OK, start writing your next manuscript. <laughs> and I always listen to him. One of the things that Gary and I were talking about this morning in preparation for the interview, Garnet, it was the role of the emotions. When you are on an astral trip with Albert and you are meeting or being with people who may not have had a human experience, do you still find that emotions play a role in life on other planets? Not to the extent that they do on Earth. Um, in fact, uh, a lot of the ETs, intelligent species on other planets, they look at humanity on Earth and they sort of shake their heads saying, how come these guys let their negative emotions run rampant? You know, the fear, anger, hate, greed, and so on that causes so many problems on our planet. For a lot of those races, that just that doesn't happen. They don't have those kinds of emotions. And on the spirit side, there's nothing but unconditional love. There are no emotions other than love, which is really quite amazing. I remember an interview that Gary and I did some years ago with a gentleman regarding his UFO research. And he was saying that it seemed to him from the uh, various abduction experiences that the aliens were very interested in human emotions. And so that always drew the question in my mind as to why they would be interested in emotions and did they have any? So you, you kind of answered that in a way, 
they they may not have a lot of negative emotions and uh and I, and i just find that emotional volatility kind of interesting because we think we are advancing you know we we think you know humanity is evolving we've been around for thousands of years and yet i wonder about the emotional component which keeps us in the fight mode yeah and that that is a quirk uh if for our civilization as i mentioned for, because so many of the really intelligent races in the galaxy don't have those negative toxic emotions uh, and so their their emotions are all positive they don't quite understand why we have negative emotions and why it affects our lives so much so that's why the ets are interested in our emotions because basically they're trying to figure out how to help us curtail these negative emotions so we can have a happier life on our planet so that's why they're studying us it's like where did these guys go off track? How come they're doing this? They're fairly intelligent, but they still have all these negative emotions. And so it, it, it's, it's a bit of a, a curiosity item for them. And it's a way for them to try to figure us out so they could try to help us in, in very subtle ways. Well, that would scare a lot of people. In, in today's world, Garnet, we want to learn more about you so that we can help you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know if it, coming from some people, that's dangerous, but from ETs, they have genuine interest in helping us in any, any way they can, other than just sort of, they, they can't sort of overtly change everything. They, they can't get rid of all of our weapons. They can't, you know, totally uh, change our, our society because they're under the, uh, what they called in, in, in Star Trek, the prime directive. They cannot overtly interfere with an inferior race. And so they can't just fix everything for us. They can't give us a silver bullet on a, on a platter. And so they have to do it in a subtle ways. And, and that's what they're trying to do. And they're, and they're trying to understand us better. And in fact, a lot of the ETs actually live among us. They're disguised as humans. You can't tell them apart from you or I. Um, and, and they're here to live among us to get a better sort of firsthand hands-on experience of you know, what drives humans. Where do they get these emotions from? And how can we help them curtail them? When you mentioned uh, Earth in a parallel universe, there's two reasons that, two things that come up for me about that. One is, uh, again, since I'm, I have not finished with this idea of emotions, you know, are there emotions in that parallel universe? But the other thing that intrigues me about an Earth parallel universe is we recently had somebody on with us in the last mm, two or three weeks who was saying that the reason that we cannot find evidence for the uh, Bigfoot, for the Sasquatch, is that they exit into an alternate universe. And, and so that's why you don't find bones and stuff of, you know, deceased Sasquatch. So this idea of Earth in a parallel universe, it, when you were tripping there with Albert, um, what what were the emotions like there? Well, they were actually very similar. I, I went to two parallel universes with Earth. Uh, the first one was, um, it was quite a bit different than our, our Earth because of a couple of quirks in their history. The first one was that Mohammed died in a freak accident before he could engender his, his religion, uh, uh, Islam. And so that, that meant that there were, there were no crusades, there were no uh, Islamic terrorists, uh, the the, uh, the World Trade Towers in New York were still standing because they hadn't been brought down. And so that was one of the quirks that really changed that because there was no, in the Middle East, there was no, uh, all these other countries, there was just Palestine, which was 
uh, inhabited by Jews and Christian Arabs uh, peacefully. So, it was, so quite a difference there. The other aspect of that was that the uh, um, there, there was no there was no slave trade in that in that uh, parallel universe because England had abolished slavery uh, early in the in the 16th century, and the rest of Europe did the same. So there was no slave trade from Africa over to America. So in America, there was no civil rights movement. Martin Luther King did not have any prominence. There was no Emancipation Declaration because there was no issue with slavery. So those are two things that were quite different. But it wasn't a perfect world because they still had World War I and World War II and a lot of the other conflicts. So their emotions were fairly similar, but, but their reality was quite a bit different. In the other parallel universe I went to, they had just finished uh, dealing with the COVID pandemic. Uh, they finished it earlier than us. And what happened was that during the lockdowns, the restrictions, they, they basically did a lot of navel gazing, looked at what was going on around them and realized that, that having uh, this lockdown caused a lot less pollution on their planet. And so when the, when the lockdowns were lifted, they decided, okay, we really need to cut down on the fossil fuel burning. And so they, they got the scientists at, at CERN in Switzerland got together and they, they started developing uh, basically a, a, a teleportation machine. And they started off by teleporting a molecule of water and then they gradually moved up to goods and people and so what was amazing there was that there was hardly any vehicles on the road he took me into LA there was no smog hardly any vehicles on the road uh, all freight and people were moved by teleportation so it was really quite amazing and and uh, their, their planet was a whole lot less polluted than ours and it's, it's really I thought about that and I, and I thought to myself I hope that our scientists can one day get to that stage I mean Gene Roddenberry of, of Star Trek, of course, he had the idea a long time ago. We're not there yet, but, but it was really quite amazing. In this one, uh, they had the teleportation machines, so they had basically very little fossil fuels being burnt and a, a lot cleaner planet. And, and, and in terms of emotion, I did not get to really speak to anyone there. I don't know how their emotions were, okay. um, but, but uh, they certainly had a, a, quite a different world in the sense of, uh, of the less pollution. From your experience, are there really an infinite number of universes? I don't know. Uh, every time I ask uh, Albert about that, he says uh, there's lots too many to count, but he doesn't say it's infinite. So I don't know. Okay. But, but there's, there's, a, there's a lot. And, and, and what happens is that how these arise is that when the first universe was created in the Big Bang, it was programmed uh, by the creator to basically split into two at random times. And so the universe has been split a number of times, you know, every time one universe splits, it's like a, a, a human cell mitosis, where a human cell divides into two equal cells. And so initially, those the split universes are identical, but then over time, the interaction of uh, matter and energy wow. and so on, and 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 uh, the the inhabitants of those universes changes things. And so they they uh, they, they they can change a little bit, they can change a lot. Um, and in fact, in one of the universes uh, that I didn't see, Albert said that. The, the comet that hit the Yucatan 65 million years ago on our universe missed the, the planet by a whisker, and the dinosaurs are still the dominant species of that Earth in that parallel universe. So it's quite interesting. And of course, the, the, uh, the split universes is, uh, has been evident to a lot of people recently in what's called the Mandela effect, which you guys are, are aware of. And, and that phrase was coined by a paranormal researcher at a conference in South Africa, I think in the mid-90s, and she found out that a number of the participants at that conference vividly recall media reports of Nelson Mandela dying in prison 
in the 1980s, whereas in the reality, in our world, he actually got out of prison in 1990, went out to become the president. So that was a, that was a, Albert says that was, those people were peering into a parallel universe where the events about Nelson Mandela actually did happen. And so people sometimes, there's a bit of an opening, you get the glimpse into a parallel universe, and then, um, then you come back into our universe and, uh, and you have vivid memories about what you saw in the other universe. So it, it's, it, it's, it's all around us. I don't know whether you people have had any experience with that, but there's a lot of, I mean, if you, if you, if you, uh, you know, Google Mandela effect on the internet, you can see lots of examples of people who swear that, that certain things were, they heard media reports about something and it, it turns out that that wasn't the case, but they swear that they heard it. So a glimpse into another universe. In any of these universes, Garnet, this is something that Suzanne and I were just talking about this morning, and I got very curious. Does evolution work toward the maturity of emotions, or is it more a matter of leaning in growth-wise, leaning in toward a purer form of intelligence, an intelligent capacity, like some of the big-headed aliens we see in the movies, you know, or depicted in the stories about Roswell, for example. Does intelligence work in opposition to the primacy of emotions? As if we could get rid of those pesky emotions, then intelligence would take over and then we could solve our problems. <laughs> well, I think it works both ways. I think, I think the more intelligent a race becomes, the less reliant they are on emotions, particularly the negative ones. They, 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 you become more intelligent. You understand that these emotions are toxic. They don't do any good. They drain your energy. And so people with more intelligence races, they, they learn over time to, to, to put those on the back burner. And, and, uh, and so I guess to answer your question, I think it's usually intelligence leads first, and then the uh, stifling of negative emotions comes along with it. Um, and in fact, in one, uh, one interesting civilization, a human civilization on another planet, they had learned to get rid of their toxic emotions. In that case, it was because their scientists discovered a long time ago that, that uh, what caused toxic emotions was a defective gene uh, in, in the human genome. And they learned over a period of time how to get rid of this through genetic engineering. So they were in a position where they're very intelligent, but their, their negative emotions or the curtailing of them had been engineered by their by their scientists and so and, and of course the obvious question i said well tell us the secret how can we do that here on earth the answer was we can't give that to you you have to find out for yourself so anyway i think what we need to do is, is increase our consciousness and our intelligence and that will sort of downplay the negative emotions and eventually we'll get just get rid of them i love that to be able to separate them yeah. out yeah. a little bit of, of emotional gene splicing if you will yes. so that and i don't mean to sound like we're going to raise a race of robots i certainly would not hope to see that in any lifetime but by the same token if you can use the best of emotions the joyful emotions the mutually supportive feelings there and eliminate this this tribal insensitivity toward each other once the argument turns to real estate or money a secondary money and power money and, and power mm -hmm. over it all getting past that is an immemorial problem and i think back to all the civilizations the great civilizations that have fallen you know most notably rome but before them the egyptians fell the greeks fell the gupta empire fell in india the ottoman empire in turkey and some people would say da 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 there is such a thing as an american empire when you look at our influence over the world and 
our day of demise will come as a world power. I have heard this before. That's certainly a lot of people who have predicted that. Um, but, but you're right. A lot of the, the, the thing that drives the negative emotions is people's lack of material goods or, or lack of food, lack of money, or their perceived lack of it. And when they look at their neighboring country and somebody there has more money and more power, it's like, I want it too. And so like all those empires, they were, they were built on that emotion and they also fell on that emotion. And so what we have to do is hopefully get to the place where anything that we want in material, in terms of material goods, food, whatever, it's just there for us. And, and once there's no competition for those things, then a lot of these toxic emotions will just fall by the wayside, but we're a long ways from there. I mean, we, there's lots of food in the world. We have enough food to give to everybody who's starving in the world, but we don't just because we want to keep it. And, and so we have to get over that mindset of it's mine. I want to keep it. I might need it later. Uh, and the more I have, the better off I am. And, and that's, that's really the stumbling block that we have. And, and you see the waste all the time, garbage bins full of food and, uh, and dumpsters and, dump sites you know that that are full of food that um you, you realize there is plenty there's mm-hmm. so much that we end up throwing it away i have a, a a little bit different tack here before we go to our break um i've been reading a book on uh, that has really captured my imagination regarding gender and you were talking about the falling of these uh, various empires or gary was and um, and I'm wondering if in your astral travels, if you have the sense that with the the other um, civilizations and the other planets, if they have uh, multiple genders. Um, certainly, with the human civilizations I've seen, they do have genders. Um, I wasn't aware of the genders in some of the other. Uh, ET races I've encountered. I didn't really ask about it, but it just didn't seem to be relevant. But but in the in, in the human civilizations I've encountered, they do have genders. Um, in the one I was talking to you about, uh, where they had the gene splitting to get rid of the negative emotions, there they had men and women, totally equal in every respect. Like there was no differences whatsoever. They recognized that everybody was equal. That there was that the, the the visit to another civilization where they were very matriarchal and i don't know if i've mentioned this to you before but this planet was governed by women and they they got along very fine i mean they didn't always agree on everything but they managed to uh, sort out their differences in a peaceful manner and so the women had all the power men could not have a political office or any position of authority or anything and 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 the reason for that was because the men their testosterone level was basically zero and how they did that was they uh, sterilized all the baby boys when they were three so with low testosterone level, the men were sort of very compliant, deferential. They didn't really care that the women were running the planet. Uh, they were free to pursue recreational activities and cultural activities, whatever they wanted to do. And, and they were not upset. Didn't miss their sex drive because they never remembered having it. And in any event, so it was, a, 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 it was sort of the, the 180 degree opposite of our planet where we have, we're still very patriarchal, where we're, there's still a lot of countries who abuse and subjugate women. And there... The women ran the place, but they were very good to the men. They didn't, they didn't abuse them or subjugate them. They just sort of said, okay, you guys go off and, uh, and uh, play golf, and uh, we'll run the, run the world. So, and on so this planet, Garnet, is there an abundance of leather? <laughs> Gary, I did, not, 
man. He's the guy bringing up a letter from Penthouse. I wrote it. <laughs> I didn't notice, Gary. But one, one, of, one of the things just to, uh, to, to, uh, to end this point on a bit of humor was when I left that planet with Albert and I said to Albert, have, has this planet ever visited planet Earth? And he said, no, they did not yet have the capability to travel between the stars. They were very advanced, but they hadn't figured out interstellar travel yet. Mm-hmm. I said, Albert, oh, thank God. I was afraid I'd have to rush back to Earth and warn the men <laughs> so that we didn't end up all singing like the Vienna Boys Choir. Yeah, no kidding. That's right. This planet should be named Bonobo. (laughs) Many years ago, I saw a special on National Geographic. I have not been able to find it since, and and I I wish I could. In fact, I think I recorded it on a VHS tape that I gave to somebody and never got it back again. And it was a current, a current civilization on an island where women are in charge and it was a complete role reversal the women were on the council they were the head of the i want to say it was an island nation they were they were very much um isolated and the men had to dress themselves up and put on makeup to attract a mate and when the men got too old the women rejected them and then they went and lived alone somewhere my jaw was dropping and they and it was a current civilization here on planet earth that had been filmed and it's like i couldn't believe what i was watching but i i have become more uh curious about it from uh the book i'm reading now where there was equality thousands of years ago and then they are theorizing and looking at as much history as is available, which is very little, to determine when the shift occurred into a patriarchal society. And I've been pretty excited reading this book. So it's just kind of up for me to be thinking about that. And I can imagine in a split universe where, you know, we went one way and another universe went another way. It, that's it's, easy to imagine. It's entirely possible, Suzanne, because there are so many different universes with different sort of quirks because of what happened in their history. So there could very well be, although this planet I'm talking to wasn't a parallel Earth. It was a different planet entirely. Uh, but right. they had managed to figure out how to uh, have a, a matriarchal society. Um, and how it started was that a, 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 one of the women had a, a vision in a dream and they, she was told there was a certain plant plant in the forest. If she fed it to the men, their testosterone level would just plummet. And so they gradually over time did this until they got to the point where they were running the show and the men were w- with basically no testosterone, were just having a good time, but th- there was no sex. There was no sex between them. And, and how they had babies was they, uh, they, they, they farmed sperm from a few males who were allowed to supply the sperm bank. And so there was no sex be- between them. And that seemed to suit the women fine. They didn't miss it. And the men didn't even know that they were, there was anything to miss. So it worked fine, that, except that, if you're a man. <laughs> you know what? We had no idea where this conversation was going, and we didn't imagine it was going there. That is for sure. <laughs> we're at the bottom of the hour. Time to take our one break of this hour. And when we come back, 
we want, we call that the marketing piece. We'd like Garnet Schulhauser to tell you how you can get his latest book, his other books, and how to get in touch with him personally, usually online, but who knows? He's a guy I'd like to bump into, especially in a bar. Let's bend an elbow sometime, Garnet. That would be a lot of fun. There have to be some fine drinking establishments along the Inner Harbor in Victoria. I know of at least one. So that would be a, a great time indeed. Garnet Schulhauser is with us. We're doing some metaphysical Q&A. We'll wrap up this hour with more talk of this nature. This is really something every time Garnet visits us. What a hoot. Let's take our time out. We'll be back in about two and a half minutes. We are Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of alternative talk, AM 1150. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mance and Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Garnet Schulhauser, who will join us for another lively round of metaphysical Q&A. On Saturday, Ken Elliott, the master of manifesting, returns with more of manifesting one, two, three, and you don't even need the three. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Broaden your horizons. You'll be amazed at all the topics we cover on Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Garnet Schulhauser. Garnet, we met you some years ago when we read Dancing on a Stamp. You've written several books since then, so if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your books, where they can find you, and how they can connect with you. Absolutely. Well, I've... Uh... I've had four books published so far. The fifth book is in the process, although the ebook is actually now available. The paperback won't be out until September, October. Uh, its name is uh, Dancing with Angels in Heaven, and it's a sequel to all my first four books where I have uh, dialogue and astral trips with my spirit guide, Albert. So information about that book can be found on my website, which is garnetschulhauser.com. And if that's too hard to remember or spell, 
just Google Dancing on a Stamp or any of my book titles and, and you can find my website. And there's information about all my books. There's links to my social media platforms. Uh, you can watch book videos. Uh, you can read excerpts and you can go to the, the YouTube page on my, from my website where I have posted all of my radio show interviews and you can access them all right from the very first one back in 2013 to today's version when I get the recording. So, and, and my email address is there on my website. If, if readers or listeners want to send me a question or a comment, uh, please do so. And I do my best to respond eventually to everyone. Excellent. Thank you very much. When we were leaving, we I think we were leaving off one topic about uh, gender. And in looking at your upcoming book, which we, we have not read, Angels in Heaven, um, it gives me another chance to ask you a couple of questions. From your experience, do angels have gender and did they ever have human form as far as you know? Angels don't have genders. And, and in fact, uh, souls in the spirit side don't have a gender either. Although sometimes they will choose to appear in a gender from a life on earth, say that they enjoy it. So they can appear in any form they want. So sometimes they'll show up as men or ladies or in uh, replicas of their last life on earth, but they don't really have a gender. Angels don't have a gender and angels generally do not incarnate. Sometimes they will manifest themselves physically on the earth plane uh, to help us out, but it's just a temporary thing. So they generally don't incarnate, but all the other souls do. Um, and the, the angels are there basically to help the souls through their incarnations uh, whenever possible. And that's why we all have guardian angels. So if you, <coughs> excuse me, if you get into a, a bind where it wasn't intended, uh, it could be endangering your life, your guardian angel will be there to pull you out of, out of the mess. Remind me, was Albert an angel or what, did Albert have a human life? Uh, Albert's not an angel. Uh, he has, he's a soul just like us. He has, he's had a number of lives on earth. And in fact, he and I have had several lives before my current life. And so he's, he, he's, he's gone through the incarnation cycle. Uh, this time he's staying on the spirit side to be my spirit guide, but who knows what will happen in the future. But yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a regular run-of-the-mill soul just like the rest of us. All right. Garnet, let me ask you the question that has been lurking for the entire time I have known you. So I'm just going to come out and ask you, answer as thou wilt. Do you have a number of friends? I'm sure it would be a small, finite number. But do you have those, perhaps, that you worked with in legal profession, people who were your clients, people who know of your work today and have known you personally for a long time? Do a select number of them say, man, I really love you, Garnet. You know, I'm just so sorry that you went around the bend. What happened to you, Albert? <laughs> The old dude on a park bench in a store, and now you're talking to angels and famous people on the other side. What happened to you? Oh, I, I know for sure that they they are thinking that because a lot of my former law partners, uh, I should say, several of them just don't quit talking to me. Like I, I after my book was out, I you know send them an email, whatever, get no reply. They they're basically shunning me. They don't say to my face, Garnet, we think you're crazy but I know they're thinking that. And that was one of the things that I realized would happen is that a lot of them would think, oh yeah, Garnet's gone senile. Um, and, and, but that was just, I was prepared to go ahead and do that because I thought, uh, you know, the, the point came where I had written my first manuscript. It was like, should I throw it in the drawer and lock it up forever? Or should I get it published? Knowing that if I got it published, I'd lose a lot of my friends and former colleagues. 
And I just said at the end, well, I had to do it. I mean, you, it, it had to be done. If I lost them, so what? And I have lost a lot of them, but I've gained a lot of many new friends who are spiritually enlightened. And so it's it, overall, it's been a, a very positive. And to, to the people who think I'm crazy, all I, all I can say to them is that at the end of the day, when their, when their physical body dies and my body dies, we'll both go to the spirit side and then we'll know who was crazy and who was not. <laughs> I like That's that. right. And here, the way I explain that too, to just extend that, let's say that you and I, I believe that there is an afterlife in some form or fashion. Uh, however, uh, unable I am to articulate it, I believe it exists. I can't prove it. It's what I believe. But you know what I figure, Garnet? If it turns out that you and I were nuts and that there is no afterlife, that we are these biological machines with consciousness, which dies when the body dies. If it's nothing more than that, I can live with it. If Because I can't be proven wrong, I won't know I'm dead. There, So if that's the way it actually is, and I, I truly do not believe it works that way, but if it does, that's the worst I can say about it. And I'm okay with that because I won't know I'm dead and my regrets in life will die with me. But what if there's well, something tells me we don't get off that easy, that the law of karma has implications that ripple out through various lifetimes and that we get to deal with what we have created, good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's no doubt. I mean, there was a period of a time in my life, Gary, where I was sort of in the same position, like I had rejected the Catholic paradigm of, you know, heaven, hell, and that sort of thing. Uh, and I didn't know what happened to me when I died. Uh, and then Albert came along and he reassured me totally without any doubt at all that uh we do exist after in the afterlife took me to the spirit side there i actually saw my very first trip i ran into my mother and father and brother who had passed away before various aunts and uncles they were all there had a nice conversation with them received warm hugs and that really put uh, you know brought it home to me that we do exist that we are eternal souls and then when our physical bodies die we go back to the spirit side where we came from and there Yes, there we have to deal with some things. We, we're not judged by anyone except ourselves because when we finish our lives, we have a life review where we go over everything we did in the past life and we see the good things we did, the bad things we did, and it's all part of uh, you know, trying to uh, get ourselves ready for the next incarnation should we choose to do that. But we're not bound to come back to Earth. Uh, for most of us, it's a, a moral imperative. It's sort of like I screwed up in that last life. I hurt a bunch of people. I realize now how bad it was, and I want to go back again and try to do better so it's really sort of a, a moral thing like uh, it's like somebody who's who's training to run the the marathon and and uh, uh stops after 20 20 miles because they can't finish uh they, they will say to themselves well i'm going to go back and do it again until i finish the marathon and it's not because anybody's holding a gun to their head but because they feel a moral imperative so that's how we feel when we get back there it's sort of like okay I should go back and I, I heard a lot of people in my last life or several lives and I want to try to be a better person. So I'm going back. I love the idea that we can have some choice in the matter. I have a feeling that there are influences over there. Like if you want to work on this, for example, there, and this is, this is one of my little pet theories that people who are great in the arts, because we, we can hear, we can see. And so we uh, marvel at their genius. If you're a Johann Sebastian Bach or, or a Mozart, if you are Prince, for example, the Beatles, you know, mm -hmm. John Lennon's over there. He gets heard from a lot, supposedly. When these people reach a certain station, that they can affect the world through their product, their music, their acting ability, whatever it happens to be, their great literature, perhaps. 
there is something about them that seeks to ever refine their art or their craft. It's not some, something that you simply set down. And so I'm inclined to believe that the reason why you have a Mozart or a Prince or a John Lennon or an Elvis Presley is because there was something in their souls that compelled them to get back into life, get back into creating and leave this wonderful record of their creativity for the entire world to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely, Gary, you're right. And, and, and that compels a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to actually come back um, to try to improve their art, to try to make human life on our planet better. And, and a lot of those souls, they're sort of very advanced souls and they, they come to planet Earth not to, so much to learn and, 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 and face challenges for themselves, but to help other people, help humanity. So there's a lot of those people. And you're right, with, with, the, with the musical prodigies, I mean, like Mozart, I think, was, was he composing his first uh, music at age of five? I think it was. Yes. Which is incredible because at, at the age of five, I was playing with toys. I mean, uh, and, and so he, he, he was, and I don't know this for sure because I haven't, haven't traced his history, but I, I'm fairly certain that Mozart had a previous life on our planet as a composer and that some of that uh, previous ability and knowledge was kind of leaking through to a five-year-old uh, child and that's why he got so he basically had a head start and his idea was i'm going to take what i learned from the previous life and i'm going to come here and improve on it and make the world a better place with my music so um, you're absolutely right it just makes sense to me and you know that's a lot of taking the metaphysical view of life garnet that we seek to make sense without making too many assumptions at least i try not to am i guilty of it now and then sure there, but then there's this logical side. My left brain kicks in. I said, well, you need to be asking questions about how realistic this is and how you can back what you say with evidence. There are a lot of people that say some marvelous things, but it's not tethered to anything that is empirical, anything verifiable. And as a result, I tend to take a dimmer view of those sorts of comments or, or predictions or readings of any kind if they aren't tied to a verifiable reality. Yeah, and, and a lot of the things that, of course, most of the stuff that, that I have in my books isn't verifiable empirically. I mean, it's just not, the science is not there. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't take a camera with me on my astral trips and bring back evidence because you can't, I mean, you, you can't hold anything. Uh, I can't take a tape recorder. So people who read my books are going to have to take it on faith that I saw what I saw. And if they choose to not believe it, well, that's fine. I mean, it's entirely up to them. I mean, everyone has the right to, to form their own beliefs. Um, whether they're uh, absolutely right or wrong based upon the uh, perspective of the spirit side, but that's fine. I mean, if there's, there's, people could live their lives out. And as I say, at the end of the day, when they, their physical bodies die and they go back to the spirit side, then it'll become apparent to them that they were either right or wrong, and, uh, and they go from there. Garnet, I wanted to ask you, give us a little history lesson here about the way Canada did things differently from the United States of America. I'm very curious about why was, in your opinion, and based on your knowledge of history, you're a very well-practiced attorney, you know yourself some Canada and the history thereof. Why didn't slavery ever take off in Canada? You know, I'm not really sure. I think, I think probably the, the main reason was that we didn't have the cotton fields and sugarcane fields that, that existed in the southern U.S. Um, so so I, I think that's probably the only reason I can think of because uh, certainly the slave trade was, was going on 
in, in, um, in, in great numbers in the U.S., just didn't hit, hit Canada. And there shouldn't be any difference because Canada was a, basically a British colony with some influence of the French um, in its history. So there wasn't, that wasn't different. So I don't really know. I can only think that that was the case. And I don't think that there was anything in Canada that said, um, well, we are against the slave trade. I think they kind of just went along with whatever England did until we became a country. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that m most of the people uh, initially emigrated from, uh, from Britain just like they did in the U.S. with some influence from France, of course. Um, but France was engaged in the slave trade, as was England, until it was, uh, until it was abolished. So I don't really know, Gary. That's, that's a mystery. Circumstances. It's circumstances. Right. It's also the geography and the yield of the land. But I also hope that there is some moral imperative involved. There ought to be a prime directive, <laughs> you know, and yes, I think the world would agree to it now, though slavery in various forms does persist. I mean, it seems to me if we're going to get anywhere as a species, humans need to realize that it's just wrong to own another if by owning we're talking about not some kinky relationship where you decide you're going to do things a certain way, but own somebody against their will and utilize them as so much chattel. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just morally wrong. It's just totally wrong to, be, to, to uh, allow slavery of any kind anywhere. Uh, there's still some of it going on, of course, but the big one, of course, was the, was the African-Americans and, and in the U.S. Um, and uh, one of the interesting things that I do remember, though, is that, that for a lot of people uh, have said, why are there so few African-Americans in Canada? You know, uh, and, and, and I read somewhere that um, after the emancipation, when a lot of the uh, African-Americans were moving out of the South into the North, a lot of them apparently tried to cross into Canada and Canada just said, no, we're not letting you in. So that was a, that was a bit of a downside to our history. They, they just said, no, we don't want you in here. And so that's why there's so few here in Canada today, because otherwise a lot of them would have emigrated you know, across the border to Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, and so on. Um, so that, that's one of a, that's a black mark on our history. Uh, you know, among many others, especially, I don't know if you've been um, listening to the, the, uh, the problem with the residential schools in Canada and all the unmarked graves. I don't know if you've followed those stories. I'm but, aware. Yeah, but, but the, you know, and, and that's another black mark. I mean, the, the, the government of the day thought uh, scooping up these Indigenous children, putting them into a residential school would be a great way to educate them and, uh, and, and make them more, in their words, civilized. Um, and I think a lot of these schools were, were quite harsh, quite brutal. And there's every day there's there's like a new finding of unmarked graves of these kids uh, near these schools where they were they, they just died and uh, no one ever uh, followed up with them and, and don't know who they are. And, and of course, if their parents inquired as to where their children were, uh, they would told, well, they ran away. We don't know where they are. So that, that's that's a that's a big black on Canada's uh, uh, black mark on Canada's history. Uh, but the other part was them keeping the African-Americans out of our country. And that was just a, a direct governmental order, which is really mm -hmm. unfortunate. You know, we're all fallible humans. And yes, fallibility crosses the Canadian border. Can but you, I'll tell you, I'm, I would be the one to speak. If I were a tourist right now and we were talking, I would say, you have so much to be proud of, though, not only your natural bounty and your care of the land, but your willingness to look at your problems, not always instantly, as we've discovered, there, but as a nation, you're willing to self-examine in a way that I would hope we would emulate in America because we have a more prominent history. And it seems to me that our sins, we had a civil war over them. Our sins are 
are heavier to bear, but all the more necessary to examine to their very depths. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's really uh, a, lot, a lot of people think, unfortunately, a lot of people think Canadians are a bunch of spineless wimps <laughs> who spent too much time saying, I'm sorry, and not taking a stand. I don't think that's fair, <clears throat> excuse me, but we do have more people who are uh, seemingly more compliant and less rebellious against authority and what's going on, uh, which is probably why we have, uh, in, in terms of the, uh, the, the COVID pandemic, we've had a lot less resistance to lockdowns and mask wearing and vaccines than in some other countries. And I think that, that just probably goes with our nature, which is that we are, are more compliant with governmental authorities and, uh, and less rebellious. And so that maybe is good, maybe it's bad. I don't know, that's just the way it is. Suzanne. Well, I'm just fascinated and we're, we ran out, Running of time. out of time. Yeah. Sorry about those so, glitches. They get under my skin and we just work with it because what are you going to do? There's my philosophy in a nutshell. There you go. Once again, your book, tell everybody about it. We have time to get the word out to promote it one more time. My fifth book, Dancing with Angels in Heaven, and now available on ebook from all the online stores. Um, it will be available in paperback in September. Uh, you can get more information on my website, which is garnetschulhauser.com. Thank you, Garnet. Thank you for being with us. Time number eight. We look forward to time number nine. We like thank to you for you on every once in a while for these great conversations. So thank you for giving us your time today. Thank you for having me again. It's thoroughly enjoyable every time I'm on your show. All right. Stay tuned for the Christine Upchurch Show. And at one o'clock today, Pacific Time, Gary Mance hosts American Road Trip Talk. And we hope you have a glitch-free weekend, everyone.